this podcast is going to be a little different to my usual offering. I'm going to be in conversation with Kate Partello, who has not only written a couple of books, but is thinking about writing a couple more. She also has 10 years of recovery behind her, which is just a marvellous achievement. Now, I'll leave an ISBN numbers of the books in the description. I've read them and got a lot from them. And I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Well, I'm, you know, I'm more than happy to, uh, I'm interested in, in anyone who has achieved a recovery and which, which, you know, logically none of us should ever be able to do. Yeah. But anyone who does that, <laughs> I just think they're, that, that's, that's interesting in itself, you know? Yeah. And tell you're you're in recovery, right? Yes. Um, well, l- l- let's start at the beginning. Can you even understand me? Have you are you okay with my accent? And of course, yeah, I love it. Great. <laughs> it must be so <laughs> strange to you. Um, so many people speak better English than than we do. Um, <laughs> you know, I've I've spent a lot of time with Indian people, and they they speak better English than English people do as well. <sighs> No, that's great if you can if if you're if it's clear for you. Uh, yes, I'm. I I recovered in 1984. Wow. Um, and have never returned to it. So, it's it's a it's quite a strong recovery story. Mhm. But you but you don't. Go ahead. I was gonna, just going to say I've I've really been working in the field from then till now. Right. And but you don't do like AA anymore, right? Or did you ever? Yeah, I did. Um I uh, probably a bit like yourself, you know, I I feel as if um you know, I certainly started there. That's mm-hmm. what that's mm-hmm. what saved my life really. Um I have great memories of it. I I I first went in the October of 1984 and uh I became a member of it, a typical Alki person. I, I, I wanted to be the best recovered person in the world. And, <laughs> uh, you know, so I, I learned the big book backwards and, you know, and uh, I, ran a, I ran an AA group for about 23 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that typical AA stuff, you know, come rain or shine, you're there every Wednesday night. And when that phone goes, you go out and, and help someone. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so I did it for about, well, over 20 years, 23 years, I think, uh, before um, I became um, a professional therapist in 2000. And that five years of training really, I suppose, influenced me a lot. And, uh, yeah, since then I've been looking at what neuroscience has to teach us about what was thought of as a disease. Yeah. You know, I just did a podcast and, um, the, uh, host, she's an anonymous person, so she does not reveal her name or anything, but she's in recovery. And in her, her real life, she is a therapist and we were talking about the brain. Um, I just finished another book by Dr. Uh, Daniel Amen. I just think the brain is so interesting. It's 
uh, you know, they're just constantly things are being revealed, you know, about the brain um, and new discoveries are being made. And it's so hard to understand because it, it seems like brains are like snowflakes. No two are exactly alike. So we can't exactly make diagnoses because no two are exactly alike. They have similarities, but they also have differences. And, you know, it's just so fascinating to me to get to understand how mine works, you know. I know. I mean, if we're, if we're going to have unique fingerprints and eye, you know, retinas and so on, it, it's, it seems likely that we're going to have a unique brain as well. I, yeah, I usually start, of course. I usually start with a client or at least somewhere in the first session, I'll usually say something like the most complex thing in the universe is between your ears. <laughs> and, I agree. You know, and it, of course it's, it's I mean, it, it's so complex that it's quite reasonable to say that we may never un fully understand it. I agree. I think we will never fully understand the brain, but we will keep trying and we will keep making new discoveries. Well, uh, we will. We will. Of course we will. But, you know, don't ever make the same mistake I did of, of, of going to brain conferences. <laughs> Why not? Don't do it. Don't do it. I, I thought, oh, this <laughs> is good. I'm going to go to a brain conference and, uh, it's the most mind-numbingly boring thing you've ever been to in your life. I sat through a whole day of this stuff. And, really? Oh, they, they, they're so not interested in human beings. It's unbelievable. <laughs> well, that's funny. They're scientists, so isn't that funny? I know. All I'm interested in is human beings and how to help and how we can grow. And, mm. and they're talking about such minute parts of the brain that, you know, neurotransmitters mm. and so on. And, it, you know, there's no humanity in it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I... So interesting. I know. I corrected that one. I'll never go again. I, I like about Daniel Amen's book is that it, it reads like a, like a novel because he tells stories. Um, so he does seem interested in human beings. Um, but yeah, he also totally dissects the brain and is like, so this part of the brain is responsible for this and this is responsible for this. And, and you know, it's fascinating because I'm learning. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it's <laughs> interesting, you know, scientists are like, oh, all science, we don't care about the person at all. We're just here to like, look at like how something works, right? And then you've got therapists, you know, he's, he's also a, a psychologist, psychologist, psychiatrist, like one of them. Um, and, uh, you know, cares very much about people and healing and growth. So sure. Well, that yeah. sounds good. That sounds good to me. I, I mm -hmm. think the, uh, you know, the, the, the way I look at, uh, anything really, it's, it's similar to psychotherapy theory. I just want to know the bit that I can use, you know, mm -hmm. I just, I just want to know enough so that I can actually use it to help someone. And then I'm off mm -hmm. and running then, you know, and, I simplify the brain so ridiculously, but it's it's very effective. Mm. You know, we talk about the front room and the back room, and we talk about the mind and the brain, and that's that's apart from a bit of hemispheric thinking, that's about it. Uh, I say that the two rooms have got to work together uh, and not be in conflict. Mm -hmm. And trying to create. When you that, say the difference. So the two rooms are the thinking and the mind. No, the the, the two Wait. the two the, the the two rooms basically are the back room is the brain, 
which mm-hmm. is actually a very specific part of the brain. And the front room is the mind or the consciousness. Got it. So essentially, you know, you, you might have a thought or someone typically might have a thought, that's it, I'm not drinking anymore, I'm fed up with it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, if we were just one thing, if, if we just had that one mind, then we would just do what we wanted to do. We would just stop. But the brain, the back room, has been trained over years that, that drinking is a good solution. Mm-hmm. And so it keeps offering the same solution. It doesn't change just because you changed your mind. Right. And this is why we get right. this conflicted self where we keep thinking we can just think our way into it. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, it it's just a fascinating part of therapy to to try and create this harmonized self, you know, to understand that we have parts. And that- would you say then, would you agree with, you know, because AA would call that willpower. You know, we're, on, we're trying to run the show with our willpower and we don't have it. And then, you know, they say, well, the, the solution to that is God, is a higher power, something that is all powerful. So would you say like um, willpower lives in the back room and God lives in the front room? Well, I, I would, or would say, you say, no, that's all nonsense. <laughs> uh, no, no, I would, I would say that we have a, we have willfulness and we have motivation and so on. And that can get you so far. Uh, but essentially the, uh, the brain tends to win these arguments. Yeah. And, and it's basically the, 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 what we might call the medical model, at least that's what I call it, uh, or the disease model essentially puts you in conflict um, with yourself. You know, it, it basically says, um, you know, you've got an illness. Mm-hmm. And so all, any medical model has to start with the same presupposition, which is there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Now, if you, you know, if you were to ask me now what I, I mean, there's many things I love about the big book. There's many things I love about AA, but... The thing that I I often quote these days is the idea that I think it's in the preface to the third edition, but it basically says God is constantly revealing more to us. Amen. That's my favorite part of the big book. More will be revealed. I will tell you that's the truest statement. That is the truest statement in that book. Well, absolutely. Great. I love it because mainly because it's that is the genuine humility that existed in, in the beginning. Well, they knew that they didn't know everything. Mm-hmm. And they also knew that science would reveal more and that, uh, you know, they would understand better because all they had in 1935 was observation. They, they observed people and they observed what they did and how they behaved and so on. And so... What, what what did it look like? Well, if you observe somebody, it looks like this thought, this compulsion to drink just comes from nowhere. That's what it seems to do. And, and if you've got nothing better than observation, that's what you're going to conclude is that there's some kind of weird illness that makes you want to drink alcohol, which is just the strangest idea, right? <laughs> if you think about it, I mean, what a strange illness that is, right? But, but once... Once we, you know, here we are 80, 90 years later, and now we do know more. And what we know now is that that thought, that compulsion does not come from nowhere. It comes from you. 
It comes from your back room because you've trained it that way and you can retrain it. So, yeah. you know, to me, it's just it's just a natural move on. But uh, you know how a lot of people in AA get it's 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 kind of a religious thing. You know, they don't want to give it up. Mm-hmm. And of course, it does, you know, it does work for a lot of people. I've, I've spent a lot of time working and running treatment centers, uh, mm-hmm. residential rehab, you know, and mm-hmm. I used to train therapists to do this and I. I would give them groups of 12 people to to work with. And I would basically say this to them, look, I'd say that out of those 12 people, you know, my grandma could treat four of them. Right? Because they're just, they're in the right place, they're ready to do this, they're going to do this, nothing can stop them. Mm-hmm. Another four, you, you won't get a good result no matter what you do, because they're not ready. Yeah. And I said, you, you'll basically be judged on the four in the middle that could go either way. Right, yeah. Right? So it's the idea that, you know, everything works for somebody and nothing works for everybody. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, yeah, I, I, we could go deep here, but like, <laughs> so like, we're, because that makes me think of now I'm reading all these, you know, spiritual books, not now, I've always, I've always read, you know, books about spirituality and just uh, the soul. I'm very interested in the soul. And I think that whether we are ready or not has a lot to do with where our soul is in its journey. My personal you know, belief or whatever. I think this is just my faith because I think I was born feeling this way. Is that we're we're on a journey to to further our soul. We're on a we're here on this. What's the purpose of life? You know, or what's the what, why are we here? Right. Well, I think we're all here to advance our soul. I think our you know when we die, our soul travel moves on. It will move to an, a new body. Um, and, and we our job in this life is to. Gr- advance it, grow it, learn it, you know, uh, give it as much information and, and learning and growth as possible so that it's as ready as possible for the next life. And I think that there's a graduation that can happen eventually. If your soul, you know, we all feel like, or I don't know if we all do, but I certainly feel like, God, I've been here before. I have, I have been here. This is not my first life. This is not my first go round. I've learned lessons before that I feel like certain intuitions, certain things that I just feel intuitively, even my faith, you know, like I think have come from past lessons from past lives. And so I think that where you are in your readiness to be sober or not has a lot to do with where your soul is in its journey. Is your soul ready? You know, or is it going to have to come back and learn this lesson again? Or is, you know, I think that sometimes when we're, you know, those people that we're talking about in the middle, they could go either way. Maybe, maybe that's their soul's journey. Maybe it's like, yeah, you're here to do this. This is really a strong part of the growth that you need to achieve in this life. But you're full of fear or or you're full of excuses or whatever it is. So you're not going to do it. And so guess what? It's the soul's going to learn it eventually. If not in this lifetime, then the next lifetime, it'll just have to come back and do it again. And then you've got people like me who like, I was like, I'm ready. I'm I'm the first group, you know, I'm going to get it because I'm ready. <laughs> and then you've got the people in the laugh in the last group who are like, no, no way. Like, that's not that's not this lifetime for me. That's not going to that's not the journey my soul is on in this lifetime. But maybe next lifetime, maybe several hundreds of lifetimes from now it will be. But it's not part of this one. The lessons that 
will be learned through the growth of sobriety and recovery aren't going to be learned in this lifetime. Sorry, dude. <laughs> you know, that's how it feels. Yeah. And all intelligent people know that there's more to life than what we can see. Everybody yeah. understands this. And if you think about just the journey into maturity and wisdom and life experience, it's 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 going to be a very weird thing if that's all just so that we can just die. Right. And you know? then what? And I don't what? think it's nothing. What's the point of it all? You know, it's uh, it's the idea that w what's all the development for, you know? Right. So I think, right. you know, the idea that there is something more than this, I think is, is a very um, understandable one. And basically nobody's come back to tell us right yeah right or they have in different form in some way a lot of people you know? a lot of people talk about i mean i've heard nurses for instance talk about the wisdom in in a newborn's eyes oh that's interesting yeah i've heard them talk about it sometimes a baby's born and it's it's like it's it's born with a lot of understanding and knowledge which then sort of somehow dissipates within seconds um <laughs> uh, it, 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 you know it's mysterious stuff isn't it well isn't that interesting i mean they could be like you know because that baby's got a soul right uh and hello like <laughs> okay i'm in your body now and oh wait but we got to start from the beginning <laughs> That's what that split second is. That's what that few seconds is. Okay, now forget everything you think you know. <laughs> Start over. <laughs> Those lessons will be there, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and that is all part of the mystery and, yeah. and the journey. So, you know, but it can be such a scary journey. It can be such a, a perilous journey that uh, some of us want to escape it. Mm. <laughs> I mean, reading... Re yeah, you know... Go ahead. I, I, was, I was just going to segue into your book, really, and, 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 and talk about, or begin to talk about reading, you know, your escape and your, your journey. Mm. Um, did it... I mean, it must have felt like an escape, or did it at the time? You know, I never... I may be just a stupid person because I never thought of using drugs as an escape. Um, I can look back now and I would say it took me about eight years of sobriety to be able to see how it was. Um, but when it was going on, when I first started smoking pot um, and, uh, and drinking, um, I thought I, I saw it more as especially smoking pot, just a slight change in perspective. Um, it operated a little bit like an antidepressant, but I wouldn't have even recognized it as that at the time. It was just a slight change in perspective, um, but it certainly gave me motivation, which I know is not what it does for most people, but it did for me. Um, you know, it initially. initially, yeah, at first for about two years. Um, and then I would say, you know, as they say in the program, but this is to simplify it. It was fun and then it was fun with problems and then it was just problems. But it, I guess it was still a little bit fun with problems. <laughs> I don't know if I got to the just problems, but, um, but you know, close, close, close enough. I will say to people that, you know, if, if it, 
all unhealthy strategies work the same way. You know, they, they always seem like the perfect answer at first because they're quick fixes. And they always lead to long-term problems. And that's essentially what it is. I mean, if if the drink and the drugs continued to work for me as they did when I was 15 uh-huh. and, and 18 and 20, you know, I would never have stopped. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I kept trying to make them work that way. I didn't know until I came into, you know, recovery that like, oh, <laughs> yeah, they'll never really work that way again because I kept trying to make them work that way again because I missed I loved the first two years of my using I was in high school and I I describe it as being like I was a lost little girl and then I started smoking pot and I became focused and driven at the same time I started attending a performing arts high school so my dreams of becoming an actor seemed like it started to become reality because I saw how it was possible to do Whereas before it was just some dream that, you know, my parents that I'd never achieve. And so all these things were going hand in hand and working together. Um, And pot was just part of my life at the same time. So all of these, you know, the, the... uh, the academy that, you know, the performing arts high school I went to was was just as much a part of my, you know, solution as, you know, pot was. Um, yeah. And 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 it all went hand in hand. I didn't really think of it as an escape because I didn't, you know, ever feel numb. I uh, also it took me about eight years of sobriety to realize that it wasn't so much that I didn't like feeling because I did. Um, I didn't really like life on life's terms. So I didn't really necessarily want to feel depressed (laughs) for no reason, just because that's the cycle of my body. And that's the today you're just going to feel tired, or you're just going to feel like not doing anything, or just going to feel kind of depressed today. I kind of liked, like, if I want to feel sad, I want to put in a sad movie and cry my eyes out and feel sad, you know, like, oh, okay. Yeah, you just like changing your you, – you like manipulating your feelings. It's not that you don't like feeling. It's like you, you like to feel what you want to feel when you want to feel it, you know, and that's not really life. <laughs> it's, it's just not real life, you know. You, can, you can't really do that forever, um, you know. And then, yeah, like just like they say, you know, and then eventually I started getting paranoid and I thought everybody was talking about me and, <laughs> and nobody was. And I, I liked learning that lesson when I came into sobriety that, hey, nobody's thinking about you. That was a huge weight off my shoulders because I was so micromanaged by my parents that I, I did think everybody was like watching me, waiting to criticize me, you know, because they always were. So it was a huge relief and it was humbling yet a huge relief to realize that like no one's thinking about you <laughs> when I got sober. <laughs> and I was like, oh, good. Okay. Whew, I can really relax. <laughs> so It's a load off. Um, but look, let's not, mm-hmm. let's not rush past this because I think this is one of the mm. most, this is the th- one of the things I was most interested in reading your stuff um, because I don't know how, how much you, you've uh, you've you've seen this yourself, but not a lot of people who get involved with pot start talking about being driven and focused. No, I know. No, and so <laughs> I no, noticed I this. I noticed this. So I'm thinking. Well, I know that you talk about your sister a lot, and you you um uh, and you know the sort of mental issues that are in the family, and. There's there's quite a lot of mental issues that are um, helped with medication that ha- seems to have the opposite effect. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're 
you were then? Well, that's my sister. I mean, she was on Abilify, and that's supposed to help with uh, delusions, and it did the exact opposite. So you look at ADHD and they they sometimes give them Ritalin, which is supposed to speed you up and it slows them down. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. But you're you're now talking about pot, which generally most, you know, if you talk to your, 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 I'm treating two at the moment, you know, and and they find it difficult to get anything together. Yeah. You start smoking Mm -hmm. pot and get driven and motivated. Yeah. And focus. And that... It just sort of made my personality reveal itself, too, because I'm still driven and motivated more so, way more so now than ever before. Um, but it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I've been I've been sober for 10 years. So uh, no, no pot, no alcohol, no drugs, nothing in 10 over 10 years. Um, and and I'm way more I'm 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 more focused and driven now. But I but I never lost that. I, that never went away. It just sort of helped my personality reveal itself, I would say. But yeah, I used to get stoned and go for a run, get stoned and read, do homework, go to the gym. I, I went from C's and D's in school to A's and A pluses. I became focused, driven, motivated. Um, and so, of course, I thought this will work for me forever. Look what it's doing for yes. me, you yes. know? Yes, of course. Yeah. And what a, you know, just a wonder drug, right? It just it must have been the answer yeah. to everything. For, uh-huh. for, for me. Well, yeah, I didn't even know it. I just thought because my life had changed so much at the same time. So it wasn't just the pot. You know, I started going to this performing arts high school. So I thought that was that was a huge part of it as well. And I started exercising. I might have started exercising a little bit before then. So I sort of like took care of my eating disorder at the same time. It's like everything happened all at once, you know. <laughs> And so all these changes, I was like, ah, they all go together so nicely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know. and and it was such a such a time in your life. For for me, drink was, it was more. It wasn't. It certainly didn't focus me, but it, it put it. Um, it was like all the lights coming on. You know, they talk about that moment of like in the Wizard of Oz where it goes it's black and white and then it goes to color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's yeah. how it felt for me at somewhere around about fifteen, when they finally could, you know, we could get our way into a few drinking pubs and stuff. It it's like yeah. suddenly everything made sense. You know, I could see what the what the point of everything was, yeah. and all it all it is. You don't realize it at the time, but all it is is it just takes away all the worry and anxiety. And you're free of it, and that feels so good that it actually, you actually think it makes you feel better. But all it's actually doing is removing feelings. Mm. You just like it. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Because, yeah, I, I probably wouldn't have even known that until right now. You know, that, yeah, you're right. It is it is removing those bad feelings. Now I can look – hindsight is twenty twenty. I can look back and go, yeah, yeah, huh. I guess I did have a lot of anxiety and worry and then the pot coupled with this, you know, uh, performing arts high school took it away because they both gave me this soothing of, no, look, your dreams are attainable. No, look, you're actually smart. No, look, you're actually interesting. That's another thing it did for me too was really I made friends with my thoughts, you know, when I would smoke weed. I I suddenly thought I was really interesting. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm sure that's I'm sure that's not abnormal. <laughs> but like I suddenly not only thought I was really interesting, I started to like myself, you know, um, and like my thoughts and become friends with my thoughts. And they weren't all negative. So you're right. It did take away the negative, the negative thoughts. Yeah. Now, the, yeah. the other thing that's very interesting to me uh, about your your background is that you uh, you had this desire to perform. And you talk about that from quite an early age, and uh, I, although I was I was in a couple of plays at school and so on, you know, I I have never wanted to be in the limelight that way. So it's fascinating to me what because it's like a drug in itself, isn't it? Surely, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, it is. Um, no, certainly. I can say like I did stand up for a while and the best feeling in the world was when a stand up show would go well, you know, and the worst for feeling in the world was when it would go badly, you know, and and I've had both, you know, and I can tell you now, um, you know, the feeling of an, an audition that went well is the best feeling in the world. And then not getting a callback for that audition is the worst feeling in the world. <laughs> and it's a lot, but but I, you know, life is a roller coaster. There are ups and there are downs, and I'm trying to just live in peace with whatever happens, you know, um, because it, I and I do that by reminding myself it doesn't really matter. Like these circumstances, you are here to advance your soul, so just don't lose sight of that. You know, don't worry. <laughs> you know, if you don't get a callback for this audition that went well, that is just an opportunity for your soul to learn a lesson that it otherwise wouldn't have learned if you got the callback, you know? So just what's that lesson? Let's embrace that. Let's go there, yeah, you know? Yeah. Well, I certainly, I mean, I've written a long piece on my blog and, and talk to my clients a lot about learning through difficulties and, mm. and saying that that's all they are they're opportunities they're not difficulties they're opportunities sure sure but they just don't feel that good sometimes but no of course not but you know it's the it's well this is part of the conflicted self idea you know it, it's it's the idea that there's a natural tendency in our uh, back room or in our flesh or whatever you want to call it um that that we want ease and comfort you know and and so we, we naturally turn away from discomfort or for, from anything that is painful or difficult. Uh-huh. And so it's, it's kind of reversing that trend and, and helping people to see the opportunity in it. And yeah. the most frustrating thing, uh, example of this for me was in running rehabs, you know, because you've got to have rules in rehabs and it's so irritating, but... You know, somebody would come in, a typical person, would, you know, they'd come in, they'd, they'd do three or four weeks or something, then they'd find a way to sneak some alcohol in or something like that. And they'd get drunk and we'd have to send them home. Yeah. Right? Now, what I'm saying today, you know, probably 10 or 12 years after I've stopped doing that, I would now say that that was the most interesting moment of the whole episode. But we couldn't use it because they had to go home. So now I work with people who are already home. Yeah. And so we, they don't have to go anywhere and I can help them to learn from what happened because that's the, the best teacher. Yeah. 
course. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll give a, a good example. I'm working with a young man at the moment who's, uh, we've, we're in our second month now. So the first month I tend to do very intensively and I talk with them every day. But the first month, you know, every couple of weeks, he, he was having a bit of a cocaine episode on Friday nights. I think he, yeah, okay, this is sounding familiar. Go on. <laughs> yeah, so basically, the, you know, I would work intensively with him on what happened, help him understand that the problem wasn't Friday night, but the problem was Monday to Friday, and working with him about dealing with resentment, fear, dishonesty, selfishness, and all that stuff. And so the two episodes that he had in the first month were, were much less serious than they would have been normally. And now we've got to a point in the second month where it's not happening. But okay. he he had to see for himself the connection between um, not learning from difficult episodes and then using drugs at the weekend. Mm -hmm. Once he, once he right. started to see that connection and say, well, if I deal with this, now if I clean up my room, the front room, you know, if I, if I clean it up, then Friday night, I'll just, I'll just get straight through Friday night. And this is, this is what's happening now. But if, he, if I was working with him in a residential, I'd have already sent him home twice. We'd never have got to that point right. of learning, you know, non-judgmental learning and losing the fear of the drug. Yeah. But, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a very effective way of working, but obviously it's a terrible business model. You know, I can only work with a certain <laughs> amount of people every week. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I understand the whole consequences, you know, and if you do this, you're going to get sent home. You know, if you bring in drugs or whatever, if you fail the drug test, you're going to get sent home. That's the consequence. You know it going in. You know it. That's what you signed up for and you broke the rules and that's it. I get that. Um, that is how I was parented. You know, that's with an iron fist, just these are the rules, black and white, you know, yes and no. But now we have learned more, <laughs> you know, and look at how now your way has worked by being like, okay, but what if we didn't send them home, <laughs> but we like worked with that because there's more to this, you know, unfortunately, most things aren't black and white. And we really, yeah, we really have to like exercise patience, <laughs> you know, in order to get to what's going on. Yeah. Uh, one of the biggest principles in, in your traditional rehab, your medical model whether it's a 12-step or, or a CBT-based idea, it is, that, is the idea of breaking the person. You know, uh -huh. these, uh -huh. these stories of, you know, Ringo Starr and other, other celebrities and stars, you know, cleaning toilets with a toothbrush and so on. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the idea of like a horse, you know, when you break a horse. And I know it can be ridden, it can be, it can, you know, conform to the rules and so on. And so this is mainly what traditional rehab is. It's, it's just kind of breaking the person. Um, so the willfulness is no longer running the show. Yeah, I mean, they talk about it in the big book. The ego has to be smashed, and then we all stomp our foot in the meeting when that's read, you know? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Sure. Or... <laughs> and and it and it will at some point it will sometimes work for someone 
but essentially yeah. again it's 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 not it's showing no understanding of neuroscience that uh, it you know yeah. you're just conflicted with yourself you know it, it's uh, there's a much gentler and much more dignified way of doing it than that yeah, I mean, it will work for some people, but it won't work for everybody. You know, I talk about that in in my books. I think I talk about, you know, the iron fist parenting really worked with me because that's how my brain works. My sister, not at all. She's the opposite, you know. Uh, she couldn't – we couldn't be more different in that, you know, uh, in that way. Uh, you know, you tell her to do something, her answer is no. <laughs> and then you, you, you know, if, you know, you hit her and she her answer is still no. And you just can't, what? What? <laughs> it's a well-known psychiatric condition uh, to be demand-averse. Um, so that literally the harder you tell her, the more she'll say no. Yeah. So it's the, and my dad just threw up his hands and he kicked her out of that, you know, he got rid of her because he couldn't understand how somebody, how could somebody's brain work like that, you know? And it's like, well, yeah, it's, it's much easier to give your kid away, you know? Uh, to a family for 200 bucks a week to watch her than it is to humble yourself and try a different tactic because you're always right, you know? It's, I, know. Yeah. I know. And you mentioned this, and I, th- and I know it's, it's, it's one of the last things you say in, in, your, uh, in your first book about that, about, you know, your, your dad sort of not, not understanding a mental problem. You know, yeah. you just and and you know, it reminds me of. Um, I don't know if you've ever read um, Bing Crosby's autobiography. Uh, no, I haven't. It, it's it's fascinating. You, it, it, when somebody's as strong-minded as that, mm. you know. Now he had several sons that committed suicide. You know. I did not know that. Wow, several. But you know, they talk about yeah, it's similar to Wittgenstein. Uh, a lot of his few of his siblings commit suicide now the the idea of the mental strength Bing Crosby was quoted as saying when he when he was told his son had a mental problem he said how how does that work you know like what's you know he just didn't recognize the idea mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. I, there's a reflection of that in what you were saying about your dad not just not oh, yeah. seeing what that was he, he's so he, – he scoffs and rolls his eyes at just about everything that has to do with, you know, uh, oh, uh, with psych, psychology. Psychology is not even a thing to him. You know, with uh, – you know, if you say developmental disorder to him, he will roll his eyes and scoff at you. You know, that's not a thing. She's just lazy. Well, okay, that's not a thing. <laughs> There's an easier explanation than, than, than that, yeah. But – what I'm, I'm so so. What I'm interested in here is not so much his attitude as much as what it was like to be brought up by someone with that attitude. I still see it in myself. I will uh, have the same reaction, and I've started to recognize that's not my reaction. That's my dad. My dad is in my head, you know, because I was raised that way. My wiring, I was wired by him. You know, I was my early, you know, you know, early on is all training by him. Um, so that's how I operate because that's how I learned early on, you know, to roll my eyes and scoff. And it, that's tough because my soul, <laughs> like deep, deep down or not even that deep, uh, part of me believes the opposite or, you know, argues with him. So I've got this 
I've got this argument going on in my head of like, well, no, like developmental disorder is really a thing and fighting with, you know, (laughs) it's all, she's just, you know, it's a choice. Everything's a choice, you know, and she could choose differently, but she, she doesn't because she's lazy, you know? Um, and, and just about everything, you know, I have that, I have the rolling, my, my, my brain is always rolling its eyes and scoffing automatically, um, to, to, in response to things, uh, especially when it comes to, you know, uh, wanting to be an artist. Uh, now my dad is a stagehand. So in, in one sense, he works in the arts, but not really. He's a stagehand, <laughs> you know, it's a, he works behind the scenes. So there's no real artistry in what he does. Um, he moves things and he pushes buttons and he builds things that people tell him to build. He's not creating, you know, um, now the people on stage, you want to be an actor. It was always that you want to be an actor, get ready to be a waitress. You know, you want to be, you know, it was always a rolling the eyes and scoffing, uh, response. So now when I, when I, so that was my half of me, that was always my response to like wanting to pursue this as a goal. But then, you know, but, but then the other half of me was like, no, but I'm seeing that it can be done. I'm, I'm literally seeing (laughs) how to do it, um, by going to this acting school and by seeing people do it. And it's not impossible. It's quite possible. People are doing it all around me, but there's that other voice that is there rolling its eyes and scoffing, you know, and, and, and now, now I question, did, did that battle going on in my head have anything to do with my success or lack thereof, my lack thereof, you know, um, you know, because I know you mentioned in the book that you, you're recognizing more, uh, more of your parents in you as you get older. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I forgave my mom. (laughs) I was like, Oh God, I, I am her. I mean, we're so, we're so similar. Um, and I, and I, I, and I feel like everybody's allowed to live their life however they want. There is really the only thing, there's nothing wrong with what, the way my father is choosing to live his life. It's just my judgment of it. And I don't, I don't really, you know, go ahead. If you want to be angry and if you want to, you know, be headstrong and that, you're allowed to go ahead. I just can't have it in my life. So that's why I don't talk to him anymore. Um, uh, you know, and with my mom, I really just saw that our thinking was very similar. You know, um, it wasn't so much that my behavior was like hers because she was super, super abusive and angry. Um, and I didn't, you know, really get that way, like even at the end of my using. Um, but I saw that my thinking, I could I could really identify with choosing not to drink. And then, at, you know, at five, six o'clock, even 2 a.m., changing my mind. And I was like, God works like her mind you know I see that I see that uh I'm letting she just she she really didn't I she just wanted to be an alcoholic you know she really just wanted to drink herself to death and she did that and then having kids got in the way you know and again if that's what you want to do go ahead you know it's your life um you know I it's I can't sit here and judge that there's really nothing wrong with that that's your journey so the only the only thing that's wrong is that you had kids and now we're victims of it. You know, that was that's the thing, it's, you know, um, the it's part of your recovery. I think it's part of your um, development. I think that you you offer people that dignity of making their own choices. Yeah, and of course. You're not I mean, fighting with the world. No, 
<laughs> but uh, the way your dad, the way your dad talks like that, you know, it's I see it as a throwback to the moral model, you know, which 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 came before the medical model. You know, if we think about AA in 1935, developing what might be called a medical model, it's you know, it's an illness, you know. You don't need to be put oh, in jail, don't, right? Don't tell, don't try to tell my father it's an illness. I remember, you know, him saying multiple times because, you know, my mother couldn't stay sober. It's a choice. Addiction is not a disease. It's a choice. You choose to pick up that drug. Now, me years later can say, well, that's, you know, addiction is a brain disorder. I think I think it's something wrong with your brain. It is the way that you think. Um, the choice, you're right. It is a choice to pick up a drink or not. But that's not really the point, you know. Uh, that that's only that's only a symptom, not really the point, or you know, it's just a part of it. Well, that 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 idea comes from before the medical model, when, for hundreds of years before that, we had what you might call the moral model, where everybody was seen the same way; they were just making worse choices. Yeah. Absolutely. That's how my dad sees the world. Yeah, well, that's where it, it comes from the 1600s. You know, I mean, it's just, it goes way, way back uh, where people, that's why they incarcerated them. That's why they penalized them. Um, and then when the medical model came along, they, they reversed all that process and said, no, it's nothing. It's it's an illness. You know, we don't need to put them in jail anymore. And uh, and, and that's, that's when it happened. So the idea that, uh, you know, it's a real throwback. Whereas now, of course, in postmodern times, we have the learning model and so on. Uh, but neuroscience, I think, is blowing this stuff out of the water now. Yeah, I mean, my dad just, uh, he, he refuses to evolve. Um, he really loves to read books about uh, the war, especially uh, uh, he loves books about Hitler because he's kind of a dictator. Um and uh, he he's said to me numerous times, why can't it just be the way it used to be in the 50s when the dad went to work and the mom stayed home and raised the kids? And I remember thinking, you are so delusional. Like this couldn't we couldn't be further from that. Why? I don't know, dad. But like, if that's the life you were looking for with this woman, <laughs> you crazy. You are more delusional than you're, oh, God, help you, you know? And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Be because it can't? I don't know. I don't know. You were born in the wrong time? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But I look at my, <laughs> I look at my mom and dad and the way they brought us up in, in northern England and... I, I do, you know, I think about that sometimes. I wonder what they were after. I wonder what they were trying to achieve. You know, it, 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 it escapes me now what, what they were trying to go for. Um, but it was a different time. And the, the way that your dad talks, the way that I've heard my dad talk, it, it comes from a time when people didn't talk about stuff. Oh, yeah, definitely. He doesn't believe in therapy at all. and No. Okay. Yeah. No, you just get on with it. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think there's, there's something lost and something gained. And uh, 
you know, I what I do, I don't, I, I say it's 50% therapy and 50% life coaching. It's it's not really counselling. It's just a very specific form of guided counselling. You know, it's interesting though. Sorry, I just before we move move on completely. My my dad though, you know, it's interesting. Where you know, I was talking about your soul's on a journey, and whether you're fighting its growth or going with it and embracing it and moving forward, uh, maybe a choice. You know, is your choice. So my dad, you know, although he rolls his eyes and scoffs at anything at all, the notion of, you know, uh, healing or growth or uh, psychology, um, he did go with me several times to a meditation class. It was this meditation group that I used to go to that I started going to in high school um, because this guy who was this meditation, I don't even want to say teacher, just like coach because he didn't charge or anything. He was just this guy. We called him the meditation man. And he was just this happy, skinny dude that would like older dude that would come into the restaurant I worked and just like laugh and he, you know, and just like spread good energy and talk to people and, you know, eat, eat and stuff. And I started talking to him and um, ended up going, he's like, yeah, I do this meditation thing. You should come. And it was a group of people. Some of them were in recovery and some of them were just people who were interested in learning about meditation and he taught us all meditation and he called it transcendental meditation but I don't really know that that is the category it would fall under um he, and he wasn't even about that he was like we're just gonna sit here now you know we're just going to sit here for two I'm gonna you know I'm going to set my little alarm here for 20, 20 minutes, but I'll, I'll lead you into it and I'll lead you out of it. But, you know, we're going to focus on our breathing it breathe, I'm breathing in, breathing out. And then when our thoughts wander, which they will, that's totally fine. We're not going to judge them. We're just going to bring our attention back to our breath. And I would do that. I would go with him. Uh, you know, to like twice a week. And then I would do this meditation on my own. We ended up, I actually ended up bringing him into my school, my high school to teach, to teach a class about this because um, they were doing something about, I don't know, Eastern culture. And they, and the teacher heard that I was doing this and was like, oh, could we do that? And so it was cool. But my dad went with me several times, several times, um, which is so unlike him, you know? Um, but I wonder, you know, but why, why did he go with me? You know, he was interested in, he was like, maybe, you know, I think that, you know, his soul was seeking some peace, was searching for some growth. And maybe, you know, maybe that was its little tip dipping its toe into the waters of, you know, this lifestyle or th not this lifestyle, but this, this way, this way. What if I, what if I dip my toe in this other direction? What would it feel like or look like? And I don't know that he, you know, my dad is an instant results kind of guy. That's why he liked drugs, you know? Um, and, and, and that's why he rolls his eyes at the idea of therapy, because if it doesn't work instantly, you know, then, it, then what good is it? Like, you know, so, so, but I don't, but I don't, I don't think he hated it. You know, I think he was quiet after it. He didn't uh, have much to say, you know, just like I think he was curious as to like, okay, well, when when are the results going to happen? But also intrigued by like that, you know, to be quiet, to try to quiet my mind. I, I can't imagine him trying to quiet. Like I can't imagine his mind ever being quiet because I think our minds work alike. <laughs> and it's hard. It's hard to stop mine. It's hard to shut mine off for even a few seconds. So yeah, so interesting. Yeah. So what... What does the future hold for you, would you say? What does the future hold for me? Um, okay, so, I mean, 
I am going to write two more books. My uh, plan is to is to write my next book about my dad and then my last book about my mom. When my mom died, I had to go through her house and I found a lot of her writing. My mother always wrote. Not always, but she would write. And she was a good writer. And um, I found some journals and I found some stories and I found some true stories that were like half journal, half story that she wrote when she was 13 that are very good and very revealing. Um, and it, it did certainly reveal a lot about the, the, what she went through that, that led her to where she was by the time she was 20 years old and had me. Um, and so I, I want to write uh, these two more books that focus because, you know, my first book – you know, down the rabbit hole is about me, really. Although I talk about all my family, it's it's my memoir, and then the, my voicemails from my sister is about my sister, um, and her <laughs> her her struggles and her life and her her mental illnesses and whatnot. And now I, you know, I want to do a book about my dad and a book about my mom, and I want to sell it as a series called Portrait of a Dysfunctional Family. I think I if I saw that, I would buy that because everybody has a dysfunctional family. And, um, and I, and I like dissecting things. I like, let's, you know, this happened. Now let's like, let's talk about it. Why'd it happen? You know, well, you know, what can we learn from it? You know, um, let's talk about how, how our brains work. I, I'm very, very fascinating, fascinated in learning why we think the way we think, why we, why we act the way we do, um, both from like, you know, the idea of looking at the brain and the idea of looking at our soul's journey and our motivations. And so that's my plan. <laughs> that's what the future holds. And then hopefully it also holds, uh, you know, some acting work. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I continue to move forward in that way. Um, so, you know, <laughs> just hopefully I can be like, oh, look for me on blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> look for me on this commercial. I'm very interested yeah. in, in this idea, uh, particularly from my perspective as a practitioner, that you talk about um, this idea of down the rabbit hole. Yeah, you know, you talk about a triggered state a lot in your podcast. And I was like, that's that's what down the rabbit hole means. It's down the rabbit hole. I would fall down that rabbit hole all the time. Uh, growing up before and not know what that was. I didn't know what a triggered state was until I got sober and somebody described it to me as a feeling of uh, being a triggered state. Because I always thought a triggered state meant being triggered like, oh, I saw alcohol, now I want to drink. Well, that's not what it is. It's... um or maybe that's one definition, but but the way it was described to me was you are triggered when someone says something that makes you feel very defensive and uh, puts you in a feeling of hopeless child uh, childness, child likeness, <laughs> like 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 you felt when you were a helpless child, um, almost no def defensive, but almost no defense. Um, and I was like, oh my god, I feel like that all the time, all the time. And I didn't know, and I felt like that all the time. And I didn't know that there was a word for it. Uh, I didn't know other people felt like that. I just thought there, you know, uh, I, you suddenly feel ostracized from everything, you know. And I would feel like that all the time because, you know, my parents gaslit me constantly. <laughs> I felt, of course, I felt like a stupid person. They constantly were trying to make me feel like a stupid person. So I always felt alone and detached and apart from and different. Um, in a bad way, 
you know, until I started smoking pot and then became friends with myself and was like, oh, <laughs> I'm, oh, maybe all this isn't true, you know? Well, I would, um, I would say that it, what you're describing is, is certainly that. And it's, it's one aspect of, of a triggered state. You know, the idea of helplessness or hopelessness or um, the, the detachment, you know, um, but it's essentially it's it's any um, any situation where your brain perceives there to be threat. Mm, yeah, yeah. And so you get defensive. And I try to tell people now, you know, defensiveness is your friend. When you feel defensive, that that means somebody has triggered something in you that is something that there is some some truth there that you're not ready to admit. But what if you were ready to admit it? What if you were ready to face it? Let's just pretend you are. That's an opportunity right there. You know, I tell people that in recovery. And it, yeah, it's so... Uh, now, now I do. Now I do. Now, when I feel defensive, I go, "Oh, there's some truth in that. Got to look at it." And it's so much easier than you think it is. Humility has been so much easier than I ever thought it would be. <laughs> you just go, "Oh, I was wrong. I'm sorry," <laughs> and and everybody moves on. <laughs> you know, as soon as you admit it, you you're free, and then you move on, and then people forget about it. But if you never own up to your stuff, n- people never forget it. Never move on. It's a real sign of of the progress that that you've managed to make, you know, because to do that, you're making it sound, you know, really simple, but there are points in people's lives where they, they, they just cannot, they don't feel safe enough to do that. Mm-hmm. I get it. I hear you. You know, so it's uh, it's wonderful when you can. Because as you say, it's so much simpler and it, it resolves so many difficulties so quickly. But yeah, yeah. yeah if, if, if the world is just too scary to do that, then you're just going to get reaction. Uh, yeah. So um, helping someone to get to a point where they can even consider doing that is, is part of what I would say I do realizing that you know people get triggered in the sessions you know you say things uh but you work with that you know you you're working with it's it's really any situation or any physiology where you're not completely in control mm-hmm. and if it's an extreme version of that then you're not in control at all you know mm-hmm. so when you when you were down this rabbit hole and when you you felt hopeless, how much control over yourself did you have at that point? Would you say? Oh God! I mean, until recovery, none. You know, um, I lived in defensiveness. I lived in defensiveness because I really didn't know there was any other option. Um, you know, I'm feeling this way, so that's what is. You know, the possibility that there's some other way to feel that I can go, wait a minute, hold on and step back and turn and pivot, you know, and and readjust my thinking. I I didn't know any of that. I didn't know any of that at all. I do now, you know, Um, and it's so much simpler than I would have ever thought it to be because I didn't even know it was possible. (laughs) 
Well, let me. This is a good point to maybe just quickly explain the difference between the medical model and the neuroscience model, because mm-hmm. in the in the medical model, in the disease model, we would say that what you've done is to develop that ability, that you've grown or developed it, you've achieved it. Mm-hmm. Whereas the neuroscience model says you already had it all along, but you mm. didn't access it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I agree with that, um, but but maybe I'd agree a little bit with both. I, I kind of see too, like, oh, maybe I learned this, you know, maybe sobriety and recovery has something to do with learning how to do that. Um, but I also think we have everything we need all along. It is just a matter of accessing it, you know, it's in there. <laughs> well, it's the back room that stops you accessing it. It's the back room that takes over and when it takes over, then you lose you lose connection with your calmness, your clarity, your confidence, your courageousness. Your brain wants to protect you. And so mm-hmm. yeah. when, it, when it perceives threat, it takes over and it protects you with whatever you've trained it, protects you. Mm-hmm. Whether it's drugs or whether it's defensiveness or anything else. Uh, with some right. people, it's aggression. Uh, with some people, it's other forms of behavioral addiction, you know, workaholism, porn, gambling, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's whatever, whatever you've trained your brain is a good protection it offers you at those times. Mm-hmm. So fascinating to me. I mean, look how, uh, would you, would you say it was consistent when you, when you had that experience of going down the rabbit hole would you say it was the same every time? Would you say you recognized it by its its consistency? I would say I didn't recognize it as other, I, I recognized it as feeling bad for myself. You know, because I, I think that uh, my grandmother had identified, oh, she's feeling sorry for herself, you know, out loud to me when th- this happened. Um, you know, and so I always thought of it as a fault, um, but I never really thought of it at all. But was it consistent? Did it, did it happen the same way every time? Yeah, pretty much, (laughs) pretty much, pretty much throughout childhood. And then, um, and then even into adulthood, um, I would get triggered by, um, I had a smart boyfriend and he was like really smart and he would like talk at me and I would get triggered because I, he would like speak in large sentences that I was like, I'm too stupid to like under to like follow what the hell he's saying. Like, I'm, <laughs> you know, and I would just like, boom, right there, right back to, to helpless child, child likeness or childhood, um, just helplessness. Um, and, um, not, and then I wouldn't hear anything he was saying because I'd be too, I'd be immediately just like down the rabbit hole so far down there. I can't even hear you. You know, I can't hear you, let alone follow what you're saying. And then he would just talk, 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 talk. And I would just be down there. And then I'd, I'd be down there and I'd be like comforting myself just like I did when I was a kid being like, I wonder if he knows that it's literally been four hours since I've said a word. Like, does he even know that? Is he aware that he's been talking for four hours and that I've said nothing? I am watching the clock. It's been four 
hours. I wonder what he said. <laughs> like, was it? I wonder if any of it may, would make sense to me if I was listening. <laughs> you know, and I'd just be down there, like, like making myself laugh, like talk. You know, talking, but but down that down that rabbit hole. You know, there. Um, you know, and it would take days sometimes to come out of that. You know, it, it, the so the so the idea f- for from my perspective is that we understand that as a part of you. And that's why it's so consistent is because it's, it's like a, almost like I, I think of it almost like a mental snapshot, but it's a more complex form of a photograph. So it doesn't just include a visual image or uh, an embodied self. It, it also includes uh, attitudes, beliefs, worldly experience and so on. So, it doesn't surprise me to hear that when you would when you were right down that rabbit hole that you couldn't really listen you know because mm. it's probably from a younger time in your life when you weren't capable of understanding sentences like that yeah oh absolutely oh yeah it all goes back to early childhood everything it all does cuz that's where we're wired that's where we learn how to behave in the world and how to think you know, that's where we learn. Um, yeah. So, of course. That's that's how the brain takes over. Yeah, yeah. So, again, you know, this is more or less where, where we started tonight saying, you know, how do any of us ever actually recover? It's, it's <laughs> it, you know, it's easy to see why some people call it miraculous. Yeah, I would say it took me a you know, I, ne- I never had like a spiritual experience. God did not come down from heaven and strike me sober or anything like that. But I can definitely look back now after 10 years and 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 have a step back and go, oh, I, I have I, I have <laughs> I have I have come some I have come far <laughs> and that it then that's good. And that is a miracle. And that is a miracle. Um, I, I don't look at my my life on a day-to-day basis and go miracle 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 no no but i can look back now and go oh wow that is a miracle oh wow you know it was a slow miracle it's a slow miracle that happened <laughs> you know but i do believe that's part of what i'm here to learn is patience i do i do think that's part of my my soul's my personal soul's journey it's got to learn patience cuz i am not patient and i was not raised by patient people and so i do think that's one of the things you know it's going to all happen slow. Yeah, I, d- I did have the spiritual experience. Uh, oh, wow. And it's, yeah, it's one of those things that uh, at various different times over the last 37 years, I've, I've appreciated it and I've, I've been embarrassed by it. Um, I've tried to forget it. Uh, but I keep coming back to it and I keep being reminded um, by life and and by my lack of faith sometimes, that this did happen to you. You can't really, you know, when something like that happens. What happened? Well, when, when you've been 15 years on the drink and drugs. Yeah. And then you get to a point where, you know, I always tell people a rock bottom is, is it's the last straw that snaps. It's no big deal. It, it often doesn't look like a big deal at all. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Mine wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me too. So one afternoon, I uh, ended up 
going out for a walk and um, essentially, you know, I'd, I'd called them in AA and they told me that only God could help me and that I was powerless myself and they said, look, just think about it, you know. And I had nothing better to do, so I just thought about it. <laughs> and a couple of days later, um, I went for this walk in the afternoon and I sat on this bench looking at, you know, the the fields and so on in October of 84. And a, a minute or two later, I had no interest in alcohol or drugs. And it's not something you can explain very easily any other way, mm-hmm. you know? You, 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 I went from somebody who was totally disinterested in people. I mean, people to me were just things to get me things. <laughs> you know, it was just people, things, just things to be manipulated and got out of the way of. And here I am now, 37 years later, I'm a therapist. I work with people all day, every day. You know, I was transformed as a person, not by development, not by thinking about it, but just by something that happened. Yeah. That is very difficult to explain. But I literally felt, you know, when the wind buffets you, on, mm-hmm. on on an October day like that, it was a, it was quite a strong wind, and I felt that wind suddenly blow straight through me. It was the weirdest experience. Instead of instead of hitting me, it just went straight through me, and and I literally felt some some little pieces of madness just get blown out of me. Oh wow! And I felt them go, and it was it was the weirdest thing because you don't get any little instruction leaflet that says, oh, Dave, what's just happened to you is this. And this is how it's going to feel from now on. I had no idea what had just happened. All I knew was I had no interest in drink or drugs from that day to this. And when, when I tried to explain it to people, you know, it's a very difficult thing to talk about. You know, how do I know what it was? I knew it was the the right moment in my life for something like that to happen, and it did. Mm-hmm. Now, not everyone has that experience, which is why I'm sometimes been embarrassed about it in the past. You know, because I didn't want to make I didn't want to sound elitist or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. I know. I know. I know. I know. I worry about that because now everybody thinks, not everybody, but. People are like, you're judging me. And I'm like, I'm not judging you. I'm just, I just have, to, for Christ's sake, no one's, I don't care about, like, I don't care enough to have a judgment. I'm just telling you that, you know, from a place of 10 years of, you know, sobriety. So like, I'm not judging you. <laughs> you know, I so worry about that because I know. Yeah. No, I but know. it is, it is a bit of a trap though. It is a bit of a trap because if, you know, <laughs> you're trying to talk to a vulnerable person who you're yes. trying to gain some trust and if you start talking about how, you know, useless you are or something, then you're not really selling them much. But if you try and tell them how great everything is, then they feel like you're kind of looking down on them or something. Right. I just try to be honest. I mean, I, I hate it. I will tell you one thing that I hate about AA is that it's full of people. 
and people are full of shit. Um, you know, <laughs> at least some people. Oh, a, you know, a, a good, you know, percentage of people in AA are lying. And, you know, and they go in there and they go, you know, I used to my life was terrible. I lived in a gutter and now I own my own business and everything's great. And, blah, 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 blah. and I'm like, I know you. None of this is true. You know, like you didn't live in a gutter. You might have lived in a one bedroom, you know, with a roommate. You didn't, you know, you don't own your own business. You know, you sell shit on Etsy. Like, stop it. Like, it's, you're, you're full of shit. Stop it. You know, I just try to be honest, you know, and be like, look, it's not all great, but, and this is where I think people suddenly think I'm judging them and that I'm an elitist, is that I I do say, but, you know, let's find the lesson in it. You know, people do like to stay in victimhood, I've found, you know, um, if they're not ready to to grow to, to or whatever, you know, to get sober, to do the things to to heal. And they want to they want to stay stuck in their grief and they're looking for someone to be their yes man to just nod and go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And you're, you came to the wrong person, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But I will. But I will tell you the truth. It's not all puppies and rainbows. Um, it's not. But but you can do it. The biggest lesson that I, I learned at the time, I think, from having this experience um, rather than, you know, the learning process mm-hmm. was was that I, I instinctively chopped up my experience and said that healing and recovery are two different things. And I think they sometimes get pushed together. But mm-hmm. I, was, I was healed that day. And I can't mm. take any responsibility for it. It just happened to me. But but I wasn't recovered, you know. Right. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I I tell I tell people AA and recovery are not the same thing. AA is one thing you can do to help you recover. Um, but but AA is not recovery. Yeah, AA is not sobriety. <laughs> you know. Go on. Sorry, but yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really helped me in my practice. I think that uh, you know that some people get that sort of instant healing thing. Some people don't. But recovery is your responsibility. It's it's about growth and it's about facing things and taking responsibility for yourself, self leadership, and that everyone has to do that whether they have the learning recovery you know healing or the the instant healing um i absolutely yeah i, I didn't have any more idea how to live after that experience than i did before it i had to learn because i'd spent every waking moment of my adult life i was 29 and i had every every waking moment was drunk I didn't do anything normally. I didn't have sex normally. I didn't. I, I didn't eat normally. I didn't get dressed normally. I didn't do anything yeah. normally. And so, learning all of that stuff when people expect you to be a grown-up, you know, that was that was the toughest thing for me. And I think everyone has to do that, whatever kind of uh, sobriety you've you've got. Yeah. So. I, I always say to, what I say to my clients now is, look, forget abstinence. You know, don't aim for abstinence. It's the worst possible aim. Aim for growth and learn from everything. Mm. And that way you get out of this trap of success and failure that's so, it's a killer. Mm. You know, if you if you just want abstinence, then 
Number one, you know, you, you achieve your target eight o'clock day one. So there's no growth in that. You just say, I'm stopping and you stopped. But then a week or two later, when you get drunk again, now you're a terrible failure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will say for um, in my journey, though, I have to stay sober. I cannot uh, pick up because the, the amount of growth that has happened from just putting down the, the drink and drugs has been like, amazing and I would not have achieved it if I was still using you know so uh you know like I think there is something to just putting them down even if you do no work I think that this whole more will be revealed thing starts to happen um because really it seems like at least just from my experience the smoke clears um I start to see things differently my perspective on the world changes just from putting down the the drink and drugs now I mean I've also done a, a lot of work you know I I do the steps constantly I'm doing them yet again with yet a new sponsor I just never don't do them so you know there's so I guess I can't really tell you that you know nope I just put it down and that was all I did nope but um but like there's, I think a lot, I think a lot has to do with just putting it down. Um, you know, I think sudden, suddenly you can see, I would say, suddenly you can see, um, and you can, you know, and then you see a lot of people, you know, in AA or just in recovery or whatever that stop doing the work. And then like we talk about emotional sobriety and, you know, and they just stop because they think they did it once and they can just stop and, and everything should be better. And then you see anger start to come out. And it's interesting because, you know, that's exactly what would happen if, if I had kept drinking. Anger. Like, you, you ever see an old happy drunk person? Like, no. Like, you see old angry drunks, you know? You never see, like, <laughs> an old alcoholic who's really fucking happy, you know? You just, and that's exactly like exactly what will happen just if you're if you're not doing exactly what you're saying just just grow just aim for growth you know if just just grow and learn and admit and be honest which is a big thing no it's it's yeah. it's, it's 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 the way that uh you have grown and the way you've learned to do it and motivation and discipline it does have a part to play there's no doubt about that uh, it's it's something that uh, if if particularly if you're like a top up rather than a binger, uh, mm-hmm. you know, then getting away from it is a big big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I work with obviously I work with both kinds, um, mm-hmm. and I find bingers a bit more difficult to work with generally because you know I'm working with one guy at the moment who. He only uses once every three months or so. Mm-hmm. And the, the difficulty is convincing the binger that the problem is happening now. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. like, but they usually think, no, I'm okay now. Mm-hmm. But by the time the thought has come to use, it's way too late. Mm. They do say the, the relapse happens long before you pick up a drink. Exactly. Um, but convincing them that now is the time to buckle down and actually start to share properly about what's going on is is not easy. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I'm still learning. Um, 
we are all still learning. I think that's what makes it fun. Um, yeah. yeah. Everybody, every every client I take on, I the difficulty for me now and the fun in it is thinking, how can I present these ideas in a way that makes sense to this person? Right. right. With the slightly unique background, you know, slightly kind of, everybody's everybody's got that little bit of uniqueness about them, um, you know, that we, we, we try and come to terms with. Some Some people are more visual and some people more talkative and some people want the methods but we all find a way um if we really want to yeah if we really want to if our soul is ready or if we're ready to go on that journey yeah yeah so onwards and upwards exactly (laughs) exactly amen Well, listen, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. Yes, you too.